The text that we're looking at this morning is Romans 11. By the way, we're still in Romans chapter 11, but uh, we, this is kind of a challenging text in many ways. It deals with the large scope of Israel and God re- seemingly rejecting them and God's movement to incorporate the Gentiles. But I think there's something deeply personal in this this morning, and so we're going to look at the whole idea of God's hope in the midst uh, or in the face of failure. And think of that in terms of what we're doing. Starting in verse 11, the text says this. So I ask, did they, meaning Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation for the world, uh, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now it sounds all wonderful and very theological and big picture. I'm hoping that we can land this in our own environment. One of the things that we will discover in the context of this is that is to discover God's hope in the face of human failure. The, the key in this text is really to understand the, the hope that God provides in the face of human failure. You can see it as you begin to scan through the text that there seems to be some significant crisis going on, especially with Israel, but Paul magnifies it himself, and we will also discover it in terms of the Gentiles. I was reading uh, Catherine Sanford's article uh, that came out of Life, uh, lifehack.org. She was talking about the 30 most powerful quotes on failure that will lead you to success. I want you to listen to her opening remarks because I think often they're very true. No one can live their life without failing. I am not sure why people have such a fear of failure as it is the standard life experience we must all have. Today's society is obsessed with success and achievement and failure is definitely not part of the equation. Failure and making mistakes is hidden away or seen as a human weakness. But be very wary of the messages you are being influenced by when it comes to failure. If you avoid making mistakes in your life, struggle to do everything right, and are obsessed with perfection and order, then living and experiencing a successful and happy life is going to be impossible to attain. I uh, have told you several times, and if you're hearing this for the first time, uh, you're probably fortunate. When I grew up, I, I struggled in my early teens, even as a believer, with the idea that my sense of value as a person was all contingent on being successful. Most of that stemmed from my lack of believing that my dad could be proud of me, and so I spent most of my early teens, and later teens even, trying to do everything absolutely right so that nobody, especially my dad, could, could find anything wrong with it. Because the moment that someone found something wrong with it, I saw that as a miserable failure and that I wasn't worth anything as a human being. I don't think I'm the only one that's ever gone through that. In fact, just to give you a picture of how bad it was and the fact that I'm standing here talking to you has value of God's grace is that uh, we used to play table games as families and I used to do these with friends. Some of you have heard this story. 
But my sense of worth was so tied into not failing that if I started losing a table game and I knew that I was kind of on the precipice of losing, I would deliberately start losing so the other person didn't have the privilege of saying they beat me. Because if they were better than I was at playing the table game, that meant I was a miserable failure and I wasn't worth anything. Now that's pretty messed up. And the fact that I'm standing here isn't because of my ability to find success through my failure, but God's grace to give me hope in spite of failure or success. And what I want to broach you on is this whole idea of this text talking about Israel's catastrophic failure and how even they find hope in the midst of this debacle that they have created because of their rejection of God. And how it needs to translate into our own personal lives as we live every day. I ran through the, the, some of the quotes that she identified. I'll give you some of them at the front end. There's one anonymous quote that said, never let success go to your head, never let failure get to your heart. There's some practical wisdom in some of the things that we hear from people, and the reason is because they've gone through this. There was one by Mickey Rooney who said this, you always pass failure on your way to success. Another one was a Chinese proverb, failure is not falling down but refusing to get up. Nelson Mandela made this comment, do not judge me by my successes, judge me by how many times I fell down and got back up again. Napoleon Hill made this comment, most great people have attained their great, uh, the greatest success just one step beyond their greatest failure. I, I wanna propose to you this morning that if you have not failed, you will never discover God's hope. The gospel is hope in the midst of human catastrophic failure. The person who doesn't need the gospel is a person who can't come to grip with their own failure. They can't come to grip with their own sin, their own sense of eternal destiny, and they're gonna do everything in all of their stubbornness and their ego, they're going to prove that they're not a failure, that they don't need to be saved. And at the heart of this, we have this amazing text that, of course, deals with the greater scope of how God deals with Israel and the Gentiles, but I believe that it lands squarely in the lap of how we deal with failure and the hope that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first thing I want you to notice is the God's richest Israel, because we don't understand their failure as well if we don't understand how rich God has made them. And it's a term that he uses twice in here to talk about the riches that he has given to the Gentiles, but it starts with them. In Romans 9, 4, 5, we've talked about this earlier, that he says this, Israel has been given the adoption of sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. That doesn't, he didn't just make that up as part of their own collective psyche, like we think we're better than everybody. It goes all the way back to the promises God made through Moses to the people of Israel. And, and if you go back to Exodus 19, five and six, you will see that God makes this statement. It's part of his, his holiness code, but it says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You will notice that there's a contingency there. If you keep my covenants, if you obey me, 
It doesn't mean God will discard them as a people, but they will lose this role in the world of being this holy nation, this kingdom of priests, who, who have this great, amazing privilege to share the hope of the gospel or the good news of God's grace. And so when we come to this sense that we come into Romans chapter 11, and Paul makes this staggering statement in verse 11 where he says, I say then, did they not stumble as to fall? It's a powerful statement. The word stumble literally means to trip over something. Uh, it, it literally means, and you've done it, we've all done it at one point, we've tripped on a step or we've fallen off a step or we've twisted an ankle playing sports or running around on the basketball court or whatever it happens to be. We've all tripped and stumbled over something. And in the heart of this, we discover that this, the idea here is actually a pretty strong statement because he says, did you trip the question is, did they trip to fall? Now, that seems pretty innocuous. You know, we trip, we fall down, we get back up, and on we go. But the statement here really has about it the idea of tripping to the point of destruction. Uh, the, the word fall is used in Revelation 11. It's after the two witnesses come back to life, and it says there's a great earthquake, and it says this, and at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell basically means that it was destroyed by the earthquake. So the picture that he's painting here and the question he's asking is has Israel stumbled in a such a way that they've been utterly destroyed by, this, by tripping, by stumbling over this thing that God sees so important? Now if you track this, you will discover several different things. If you go back, for instance, to uh, back in the Psalms, you will discover that they'll say a similar thing. And, and the psalmist is appealing, God, let them fall to destruction because they are an obstinate and rebellious people. And the point is, is that when God's people are stubborn and they're rebellious and they consistently and continually disobey God, at some point they trip and it's not recoverable that they bring self-destruction upon their own life and the discipline and the punishment of God because they have just constantly and consistently rebelled and gone their own way. That's not likely what's going on here, although it's part of their history, is that when we went back into the idea of their failure, we'll discover that he says something back in the earlier chapters that's probably more germane to the argument that he's making. Israel's failure, this idea, has God rejected Israel? Have they failed so badly that God can't use them anymore? Really comes out of this, these statements. And I want you just to see the statements. It talks about their transgression or trespass in verse 11. Uh, verse 12 uses exactly the same word. So some translate it as trespass. Then they talk about transgression. It's literally the same word, just different English words. So he says, listen, it's their transgression that's got them in trouble. It's this choice to deliberately rebel against God's truth. Uh, and then he uses words like in verse 12, uh, in, um, talks about failure, at least in the New American Standard. Now if their transgression be riches to the world and their failure be riches to the Gentiles. So he's, he's talking about a failure that from a human perspective looks so catastrophic so overwhelming that it's not recoverable. That it's sort of the unforgivable trip, it's the unforgivable sin that they can't recover from. And so he, he talks about this whole dynamic uh, and, and how they're struggling with this. 
And God finally, and, and in the question mark, he says, listen, as bad as it looks, I want you to know God has not done away with his people. God has not put them on the back burner and said, I can't use these people anymore. And there's some of those theological things saying, well, Israel fades, so now he's replacing them with the Gentiles, that they are the ones that are replacing the Jews. Well, in terms of mission, there's an element of truth to that. In terms of God's prized possession, they still are God's people. They are still the apple of his eye, so to speak. You're going to see in the way Paul talks that there is a hope and a future for even Israel as badly as their failure is. And so as we begin to sort of work through that, we discover this, this contrast. You'll see Israel's rejection leads to the riches for the world. And you'll notice that it talks about salvation to the Gentiles. It talks about riches for the world. It uses two different terms really referring to the same group of people, but making sure that it's not limited, talks about the Gentiles, which would be anyone who's not a Jew, but then something that reaches the entire world. And, and so their, at, at their failure and their debacle, there's an opportunity for the riches of God's grace to spread to the rest of the world. Now, I don't know about you. If you play sports, you uh, often hear stories of high-level athletes who get injured and someone steps into their place and that person's failure, that person's accident, opens the door for another person to step in. And you've heard these stories, whether it's professional quarterbacks or basketball players who get their moment at the demise of someone else, at someone else's crisis, they step in and all of a sudden they become the superstar because they've got their moment and they used it well. There's a sense that you get a feel of that in terms of this text is that Israel's catastrophic humiliation has all of a sudden opened the door for the Gentiles to experience something that they never deserved and they never earned. And so you see this unfolding. But Paul also wants to make sure that we say, when he says, no, God hasn't eliminated the Jews. He wants to make sure he understands God's hope for Israel. And so he'll make some statements in this that are important that salvation to the Gentiles uh, is to make them jealous. That this movement that God has to bring the gospel through the person of Jesus to the Gentiles, Paul looks at it and says, this is kind of to poke at the Jews a little bit. Say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, this God that you say you served for so long and now nothing on your end is happening, it looks like God has forsaken you? God's movement is to expand his reach into the rest of the world and to save the Gentiles. If you think about it, it goes all the way back to his promise that he made to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 where he said, all the families on the earth are going to be blessed through you. Now, any human being would go, oh, great, the Jews will be successful. They'll become this kingdom of priests. They'll be a holy nation, and they'll be the center and the crown jewel of the universe, and all the nations will flock to them, and they will measure out and meter out God's grace so that everybody can, and then everyone will be successful. I, I, you wouldn't have painted it this way. Oh, well, it's your failure that actually is going to open up the door to the Gentiles, that God's going to bless all the families in the earth. See, the danger in sports, and depending on how competitive a person is, sometimes they want people to fail. You've, I've seen this in sports all the time. I see it sometimes in the way you play. I'm a bit of a purist when it comes to sports, so my perspective is prejudice. 
But I think when people play sports, you, get, you have all this, uh, well, everything from trash talking to basically cheating. If you can get away with doing things, like in hockey, you can hook somebody or, or uh, you know, smack them in the leg or do things that will try to distract them and do all kinds of things. That's the way you take an advantage of somebody. To me, that's like you don't have the ability to keep up to that person, so you have to cheat in order to keep up to them. That's the way I view it, but that's not the way everybody else views it. That's just part of the game. That's just part of being competitive. And so you get all this convoluted stuff that goes on, and, and I don't think the Gentiles are sitting on the sidelines going, we want you to fail, we want you to fail. But you know, it, you can tell that in our own brokenness. There's times when it comes to job opportunities or sports teams or opportunity for raises and promotions, there's, some, there's always this temptation in the back of our mind that we want someone to fail because then that opens the door for us. I have seen it and heard it. I've talked to people with it. I've experienced it myself, especially when I was growing up, is that there's always this temptation that you want people to fail in order to leave room for you to succeed. And it shows how messed up we really are. And then he talks about Israel's rejection becomes riches to the Gentiles. That what is, will their acceptance be? What will their fullness be? When you get to chapter 11, verse 25, he talks about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. It really talks about the idea of the full measure of all the Gentiles that are going to come to Christ. God has a plan about calling them and bringing them into the family of God. His reference here is really kind of indicated that in spite of their failure, God has a hope and a future for Israel that their fullness of the experience of them being the, the prized possession of God is going to come to fruition down the road. Now, we're not going to get into all the eschatological elements of this, but the idea is, is that Paul is totally convinced that even in the midst of Israel's failure, his ministry that he's going to talk about to the Gentiles can provoke them to jealousy so that he might save some of them. There's still a back door for them. There's still hope that even though God can't, in a sense, use Israel as a nation to be that holy nation, that kingdom of priests, because they've fallen so badly that God can't use them for that right now, but he's going to the Gentiles, but there's still a back door, and the back door is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's still a hope. Paul still sees his ministry as a way for them to find hope. And so as you move through this, you'll discover that's his context in terms of dealing with their failure. But Paul has a hope too. You'll notice he makes what would seem to be a strange statement. Uh, he makes this statement that uh, we're taking from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And you'll remember in his history that Paul was sort of the prototype, textbook, perfect Jew. He, if you go to Philippians, you'll see that he was a Pharisee. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. According to the law, he was blameless as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. See, for him, he was kind of the high-level pharisaical Jew who had a zeal for God even above all his contemporaries. And in his mind, his life was profoundly successful. He was rallying up these, this wayward religious way uh, of Christians when they came on the scene and he was having them persecuted and put in jail and he was, he was on the front lines. He was on the cutting edge of Judaism and, and leading the way to help them be successful and, and be what they, God wanted them to be. But then he met God. 
Then he met Christ on his, on his journey. And what happens? Well, we're just going to get a snapshot of it. But in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, you know what? I am the least of all the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. And he discovered that in his success, he was a horrible failure because of even this one thing, that he actually persecuted the church. And I'm telling you, there's all kinds of people who walk around this world who think they are profoundly successful according to society's standards, according to work standards, according to neighborhood standards, compared to whatever standards you want to find. It might be the sports world. It might be whatever it happens to be. There's all kinds of successful people. But they've never come to the reality of their own failure before God and their need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the, the, the great statements that we throw around that's kind of one of those sayings is, the problem is there's gonna be all kinds of people who live their life and they, and they climb up the final ladder to get to the, the crowning jewel of what they think heaven's gonna be. They're gonna find their ladder leaning against the wrong wall. That all the success in the world makes no difference if we stumble over God. Jesus said that himself. What does it profit any person if he gains the entire world? He's successful beyond imagination and forfeits his own life. And so there's a sense that Paul's saying, listen, it doesn't matter how the Jews viewed themselves. The issue is, from God's perspective, they were far more committed to their own rules and regulations and to the religion, and they had abandoned the God behind the very law that they were say they were keeping. And so Paul says, I'm the least of all the apostles because I persecuted. I discovered my own personal failure, and it was so profound that it could only find hope in the gospel of Jesus. In fact, in that statement in 1 Corinthians 15, the very next statement he makes is that he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and this grace towards me was not in vain. See, there's a lot of people that you will run into, and maybe you've experienced it yourself, where their personal failure is so catastrophic that they're like Judas. They would rather kill themselves than to try to live with the shame and the embarrassment of their own failure. And Paul says, my failure is enormous. I actually persecuted the church of Christ. And when he met Christ, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And yet Paul understood something about his grace that in the midst of his enormous failure, He says, listen, I am what I am, and God's grace towards me is not going to be in vain. So what he says now in this verse, in verse 13 and 14, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as that I am an apostle, I'm a a special messenger that God, the one who I used to persecute, that God himself is sending me, and I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. There he goes again. He's right back to his own people again. But I want you to think about it. Here's a person who probably, from God's perspective, deserves death because he persecuted his church, his people. He comes to understand the grace of God in the person of Jesus, and in spite of all that failure, 
the overwhelming reality of, of carrying the shame and the humiliation of what he did, he now in God's grace moves forward and he says, I have one of the greatest miraculous privileges in all of the world and I get to do a cross-cultural ministry to not my people, although he's hanging on to that, but to Gentiles. And so his whole form of life, his whole mode of existence has completely changed for what he thought was successful, now he's a messenger to a cross-cultural people that he didn't even care about for the most part, and now he's sharing the gospel with them so that they can be saved. Now he's never lost his heart for his people because he's saying, man, if I share the gospel, I become a living example of the transformation of someone who's so miserably failed and now God's using for his glory. And one of the things that anyone who truly comes to the reality of the gospel and the fullness of God's grace, regardless of how, in our own minds, how unforgivable our own failure is, they will find hope in the person of Jesus. That's what Christ came to do, is to give hope in the midst of human failure. The problem for many people is that they, they, they rest so solidly that they think they're basically good, they think that they're basically a good person, they don't need to be saved, that they put all this pressure on their life that have gotta do it right. They, they've gotta do it perfect. They gotta keep proving to everybody that they're a good person. And folks, that's like a train going 80 miles an hour for a mountain that has no hole in it to go through. That is going to end badly. And so Paul makes a statement to describe and magnify something that would be utterly impossible from a human perspective. How in the world would God take this knucklehead who persecuted his church and actually use him for his glory? Because the hope that we find in Jesus triumphs every failure if we truly understand his grace. And so Paul talks about this intentionality of his own ministry. He says it from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. Listen to his change of attitude. For I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do it voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship. I mean, you and I, when we've come to faith in Jesus Christ and become children of God, have the greatest privilege to help people have hope in the midst of their failure. Whether it's circumstantial or choice, people can find hope in the gospel of Jesus, and we can offer it to them. That's one of the, the greatest privileges we have right now is that when life is in chaos, when people's lives are broken, when that they're unsettled, and they're losing hope, that there's ways that God can use your life, even if there's failure in it, to communicate the hope that God can give to them, not what you offer to them. See, we like to be heroic in the sense that we wanna be the hope that people find. It makes us feel better, it makes us feel significant, it makes us feel valuable when we can come through and rescue people. But the danger is, and there's nothing, with good, nothing wrong with good works and moving alongside people in their journey, but we have to make sure that they don't put their faith in us, they put it in the gospel. And we live in opportune times for that. Now let me finish by camping on this. Human failure can be devastating. Any, is there anybody here that's never failed at anything? 
Yeah, well, if you put up your hand, you and I have to come to a Jesus meeting afterwards. And whether you blame it on other people or circumstances, I mean, there's lots of businesses in our world today, especially small businesses, that have gone out of business, not because they personally failed, but because of their circumstances. But I bet you, if they're human, there's a lot of them, there's gonna be certain personality types saying, you know, I should have known this was gonna come someday, I should have been prepared. I should have had this figured out. And they, they will see themselves as failing because I should be able to figure, I should be God. I have a God complex. I need to figure all this out. Others will feel the failure because they've had to let employees go. And it's like that, that my, our failure affects them. For some of you, you don't think you can do anything meaningful in life because of your own personal mistakes and failures and errors. And human failure can be devastating. And so the question that I think the text raises for you and I on a personal level, has, have you ever personally failed to the point where you're convinced it's unrecoverable? That this is gonna define who I am for the rest of my life, period. Have you, has your failure caused you to think that you could lose your relationship with God? I remember in college I struggled with that. God, I cannot get this figured out. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I've tried to do it right, but I can always find something wrong. And I literally remember being out in a field one day telling God, I was saying, God, look, I have nowhere else to go. No one else, it's kind of like Peter's statement. I know no one else has the words of life, so I don't mean by being a child of God, but go find someone else to do the ministry stuff because I screw this thing up so badly, I'm, not, I'm gonna be worthless to you. And I didn't understand God's grace. Have you ever failed so badly that you believe you are not sure God could use you anymore? And the problem is, is that it's easy to have this kind of hope in the gospel, but we also have this profound hope in us that I have to be successful for God in order for him to still be proud of us. And unfortunately, one of the greatest motivating factors in all of life is fear of failure because you can find the most ferocious, passionate people in the world, but it's not driven out of a love for Jesus or the hope of the gospel. It's driven out of a profound sense that I'm not gonna fail and I'm not gonna mess this up. And so they work like madmen to just simply not fail. J.K. Rowling made this comment. It is impossible to live without failing at something unless you live so cautiously that you might as well not have lived at all, in which case you fail by default. See, the other side of the coin is the people who are never gonna make a mistake because we're not gonna try anything. Never gonna take in a risk, never gonna try to share the gospel, that's for someone else because I don't wanna mess it up and be responsible for sending someone to hell. Kind of like, what kind of a God complex do you have to have to come to that conclusion? Hey, I've been there, don't worry, I get it. I, I speaking right back of myself, not recently, this was a long time ago, okay, right? But we, we, can, we can try to live so conservatively, so, so risk-free that we think, now I'm, I'm successful because I'm not messing up. And at the heart of this, it's dangerous. Robert Kennedy made the statement, only those who dare to fall greatly can ever achieve greatly. 
I want to remind you of a text in James because the problem with Israel is that even if you go back to the book of Leviticus, you'll see two chapters that are about unintentional sin. And God says, hey, listen, if you sin and you're not even aware of it and then discover it, you're still responsible, so you need to, as it were, confess your sins and offer sacrifices, but it wasn't the end of life. The other part was rebellious, ongoing, presumptuous sin. I don't care what God wants, I'm gonna do my own thing. And that becomes a little more precarious. The problem for Israel is that they had developed a habit of that, of just doing their own thing, but when Christ came on the scene, they had sort of switched to become so ferocious about protecting uh, circumcision and ceremonies and everything else that they've lost sight of the God that they were trying to serve. And I want to suggest to you that very clearly that when you look at a passage like in James, he makes a really interesting statement, and I don't think we pay attention to this very much at all. He says this in James 3.2, we all stumble. Remember the word of the first, stumble, those who trip? We all stumble in many ways. You ever paid attention to that text? We can have an obsession. Well, I need to live a pure and holy life, and that's what our commitment needs to be. But James says, we all stumble in many ways. And anyone who does not stumble in what he says is a perfect man or woman. But God recognizes that we, in many ways, unintentionally, we stumble and trip. We err, we'll sin. But God makes a provision for those who understand his grace that if I confess my sin and then change the direction of my life, that there is forgiveness and God can use us. Thomas Edison made the comment, I have not failed, I've just found 10,000 ways that a light bulb won't work. And I wanna challenge you this morning simply with this. You may have tried to follow a thousand quotes from famous people online, from Pinterest, Snapshot, whatever it is. And you may actually discover there's some practical wisdom in some of it, but you might have failed in doing it. You might have found 10,000 ways in life that it hasn't worked, but today may be the day that you discover the one thing that can give you hope that life can work. And that's not finding your own success through your own failure. It's finding the hope that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today is the day to discover how God can give you hope in the midst of your own failure. Today is the day that we can find hope to offer to someone else because of their failure. Today's the day that we can find that even believers in Christ need to find hope every single day of their life because of the gospel. Because it's too easy to become self-condemning and critical and cynical and skeptical rather than finding hope in the grace that comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so wherever you're at this morning, I hope that this prayer can give you hope and encouragement to take a step closer to Christ and his grace as it's grounded in the gospel of Jesus. Father, one of the great principles of life is that out of enormous human failure, you resurrect new hope. Father, out of the debacle of our own failure, you can resurrect hope in Jesus. 
Father, there's some sitting here this morning that may need the encouragement of the hope that you give, not the hope that everyone else has been trying to give them and all the quotes and the wisdom. Somehow that doesn't make any difference. But I pray that you'd open their eyes to see the hope of the gospel of grace in the person of Jesus, that we can have enormous failure and there's still the gospel of Jesus that gives us hope for today and life for tomorrow. Father, open our hearts. Help us to rest in the hope that you give us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.